Welcome to Digibarn Radio, fascinating stories from the history of computing. I'm Tommy Cuellar. Our next piece is entitled Curator Bruce Damer's Tour of the Digibarn, June 11th, 2006. Digibarn curator and founder Bruce Damer gave a Digibarn tour to a small group at the first open house of 2006. What follows was recorded live during that tour. Let's listen. Tremendous openness to, to the S100 platform and the Altair. And the hobbyists were, so the two significant things that were happening in Silicon Valley at the same time were the Homebrew Computer Club meeting at Stanford at the Slack Auditorium or Gordon French's garage or whatever. And then a couple miles away, there was Xerox Park. And inside Xerox Park, they didn't have something like this. They had a machine called the Alto. And the Alto had a tall monitor, a bitmap display, windows and icons, email, document composition, laser printing, Ethernet, uh, games, everything. It was the future. It was sitting a couple miles away from the club meeting. And you could kind of go there. And people did go there. And the kids went there. And the future was sitting right there. But it was not accessible to the thing that was accessible was not the, a big mainframe or an Alto computer because Xerox was hand making them, and they weren't selling them. It was this thing, you know, this is six or seven hundred dollars, I think assembled six hundred and some dollars and unassembled, where you had to literally solder every part on yourself uh, was like four hundred dollars or something. And there was a tiny company, and this is made in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there was a tiny company that wasn't even a company. Um, there's, a, there's a tour, there's a uh, thing in here uh, that was <coughs> consisted of Bill, Bill uh, Paul Allen and Bill Gates. And there was a, this is the second issue of Byte Magazine. And this is a, a story by the publisher, uh, or the editor rather, Carl Helmers, asking, are they real? Is all, are all these personal computer companies just a bunch of hype? Or are they real? And so he went on a road tour visiting the places where these, place, these things were supposedly made, like Sphere in Bountiful, Utah. There's the office and the factory right there. <laughs> There's a cougar. And so he went to, <coughs> to Sphere and well, thought, thought that it was kind of real. And then he went to MITS, which, of course, he knew was real. And this is the MITS factory um, in Albuquerque where they're making the Altairs. And one of the interesting thing is, uh, here's th this statement here, 75, this is in the summer of 75. So he says, they also have, this is at MITS, they, all, they also have a very busy group of college types working away at program development. They're delivering BASIC now and are about ready to let loose extended BASIC. They put BASIC into a system for me so I could see it work and then ran a tape of uh, Hamrubabi, that's a game, right? Game program, let me sit down and kill off the entire population of mythical country in short order and became instantly addicted to computer games. So that was Bill Gates and Paul Allen uh, that were living literally in a motel across the street from this or nearby this writing BASIC. And the ads for their BASIC are in here. So it's the first mention of Microsoft. Paul Allen convinced Gates to drop out of college and come in. Yeah, they come and, yeah, they, they worried that they were going to miss the revolution if they didn't. And there's this is a Altair computer notes, and this is all the, what the hobbyists did with their Altairs. Because 
Mitz, who made the altar, was trying to convince people these were serious. You could do things with these things. They had the Mitzmobile, which was a bus that drove around the country to conventions and, and you know, homebrew clubs and uh, tried to show that, that small computers were really serious. And it's, it's pretty fascinating. So the, the phenomenon was starting here at, par the, at Park. You know, they were living in the world we live in now in a few places, uh, Carnegie Mellon, and places like Stanford had altos connected to the, to the ARPANET. And they were playing Maze War, a, a multiplayer 3D game, on their altos across the ARPANET. Sound familiar? Well, this is the mid-70s, to mid into the late 70s. And so these two streams do converge, and they converged uh, by the early 80s into, into one stream, things like the Lisa and the <clears throat> and, the, and the Mac eventually, and the PC eventually. So, but that, that took a while to happen because these machines were seriously underpowered. <laughs> there, were, there wasn't a, a networking standard. Uh, you, you basically was a hodgepodge of manufacturers of these boards. Here's the MSI, which was meant to be a serious business computer. And it was made by uh, followers of EST. You remember the EST movement of... Uh, it was kind of a, a human potential movement, and they all they, they, they stuck with certain beliefs, and it didn't really serve the company very well because the idea of S is if you conceived of something, it was perfect, and nothing would go wrong, and you never questioned your original assumptions. So <laughs> you can get far. And there were other companies. That, these computers were selling so fast that that companies like the Byte Store um, started making their own because they couldn't get them fast enough. Um, so, like for instance, this is an Olson 88. Olson 8080. They could bike. They just put their nameplate on the top of it and make it theirs, and, and sell. These were made in the stores, assembled in the stores. Again, an open standard that you could you could do that. The OSI Challenger. This is a, literally one of the first ones made. This is a famous line. Vector graphics, which really wasn't oriented toward graphics. It was just called vector graphics. It's another famous one. This is another famous one, the Southwest Technical Products uh, machine. And there's a famous photo of them, these basically kids, and they're, they're holding a shirt that says, their they're shirt in their booth at, at, at a big PC show was Altair Sucks. <laughs> well, yeah. That was the marketing of it. That had the disk drive. Yeah, this had the disk drive. Yeah. And um, if some of you, the people who made the, the, the CPU chips, they... Um, this is a development system for Zilog. So this is a computer made just for Zilog, the chip company, to, to develop their machines on or their, their, their architectures on. So this is a really rare thing. I'm really glad to have it. I've got a few Intel development systems too. And then for the rest of us that couldn't afford like $1,000, they started coming out with these really low-cost kits. This is the Chem 1. And it was originally by a company called Moss Technology. It was taken over by Commodore as Commodore's first computer. And all of you Canadians will remember Commodore, based in Toronto. And it, Commodore sort of could have been the third great computer company, but it was so incredibly mismanaged internally that it just kind of collapsed like the Soviet Union. Uh, but this was their first computer. The reason that they, they got the Kim 1 was because they ordered a ton of the of, of Moss's chips and then canceled the order, bankrupting the company Moss, and then took them over. It was like incredible dirty. Um, Tandy did things too. Tandy stole the design for the, the TRS-80 from, 
from somebody else. But it was sort of rampant. I mean, we think of Microsoft being the great, that, that was what was done in, in those days. There was really no, the industry was so fluid. So this is the Commodore Kim 1 and the Kim 4, which is a pretty rare thing. And the Book of Kim, you know, like $9, that was a lot of money. And think of, think $40 today. Uh, so what happened at that, as you say, the uh, kits get the packaging thing. The, the kits are finally starting to, to get packaged. And the way they got one of the first packaged machines was this. It was the Sol 20. It had beautiful maple sides, or walnut or maple, I keep forgetting. Um, Lee Felsenstein, who was, whose name is scribbled on that machine there, uh, having run the homebrew club, you know, and the club members were founding their own companies, and he founded Processor Technologies and made this, and it's really packaged. It, they called it a, the, the terminal computer and because th there wasn't an idea of the personal computer. IBM made that term personal computer up. They were called micros, microcomputers. Sometimes they call them minis, you know, sort of not really correctly. And he said, well, the idea of this machine is it feels like a terminal. No, on a big mainframe computer, it feels really nice. It's not like some cheap keyboard or switches, and, and it has a nice case to it. And they called it Saul because of Les Solomon, the publisher of the magazine, they wanted to get it on the cover of. So you name your first child after the uncle, and they'll leave the inheritance to you. Um, so, but this sold about 10,000 units. And Steve Jobs and Wozniak saw this. They were coming to club meetings, they had 10,000 units. Well, there's got to be a better way to package it than this. This thing weighs a ton, and you can't really expand it and everything. And the result was that right there, the Apple II. But there's there's more to the story. Radio Shack was entering at the same time. You know, Radio Shack had basically stolen this design. That's what I've been told, right? Standing right here by a person who was involved. And Radio Shack, which is strange, is sort of a leather company, candy, you know, leather tool company. Getting into computers, you know, why Why did it even get into electronics in the first place? But so does anybody know the reason why the Trash 80 or the TRS-80 is silver? No one knows that? Well, if, if you look at this, this is a, a plate, uh, sort of a box on, on an old-fashioned channel changer for a TV because this is a cheap black and white TV. And they had a ton of these they couldn't sell in the stores. And so they were ordered the computer division to make everything match these cheap TVs. And so all the way up through $10,000 trash 80s of years later, they're all silver. So that was the design choice. And you had really weird things like the stringy floppy drive, which was just a tape, really, but tape was old-fashioned, so they called it a stringy, stringy floppy and all the accessories. So this is sold in a retail store, and that was a major move for the industry. The Commodore PET, this is what came on from Canada. Uh, after the Kim 1, and this was, you know, built-in cassette, and I remember seeing these in school, and only a kid could use a keyboard like this. Um, so Commodore was doing it, Processor Tech was doing it, and so Apple started to go crazy to get in the market, and they had the Apple 1, which was a little one-board thing. You still had to assemble it, but it was a really good design. And then Steve Jobs, the marketing head, said, we got to have better packaging than, you know, than this or that or all that crap, we got to have a, something that looks like a piece of consumer appliance. It's made with a foam core plastic case. It's accessible. It just has a better feel to it. And Wozniak was the genius behind the hardware and 
he was like a, a Mozart of digital design. He could, in fact, one of the things that to show you here is the North Star Horizon, also heavy and made with a wooden case, has this board in it to drive a single floppy. And you can see there's two in here. This was the first computer that actually had built-in floppies. And Wozniak, uh, over the Christmas of 1977, designed this to drive two floppies. So you can imagine, I mean, because he worked out, well, gee, I don't think he even looked at anybody else's design, but he didn't know anything about designing a drive controller. But he said, well, why do I need all these chips here to control the motor when I can just have one little thing vary the voltage and control the motor and one little switch that tells me whether I'm going to one drive or the other? And you got to have two floppies. Why have two cards if you just do all one thing with, like, eight chips? So this was an insanely profitable. So when this came out, it went from, Apple went from a, a cassette tape, which is a terrible storage medium, to having a really good uh, floppy drive, and that's what made the company what it is. And, and it's all because of this genius guy. And those were the two that were with plastic cases, everything else here. Era's metal, metal, and, metal, yeah, just, and you had to have serious money to get a, to do the molds and everything to make a case like this. You had to have investment. You Looking just, ahead, selling several of them. Yeah. Yeah, and you can put, you can pump them out, and, and there's a picture over there of a factory was showing hundreds of thousands of these things coming out. Um, around that time, uh, Jeff Raskin, who had joined the company, was um, working on with Waz, and this was the, the games is a big application. This is the very first game joystick for an Apple computer. It was designed by milled and put together by Jeff, and it was the, the test of whether the Apple II could support a joystick. And it uh, came out in '83. In, in, yeah, in 83, and this is, uh, Brooke just brought, this is another kind of a, a funny little joystick for an Apple II, and this is the actual Apple product. And this is the, hint, the before, this was considered lost, this is the Waz Wonder Book, and former Apple people have come by here and donated tons of stuff, but this is actually Waz's notes from the summer of 76 uh, and into 77. And it's all, he thought that these were lost too, they were thrown away. And it was found by a former service tech guy. And we actually scanned it in and put it online for public consumption last year. But it's, it's, this is the basis for this thing called the Red Book right here. Uh, these are all the sort of pre-notes, hand-drawn circuits and, and code and stuff. And we found it and brought it back to life. So that's... The Apple II. So the Apple II, you know, from the literature and the marketing is just really slick. And the company went public in 1980. And, you know, so it really started the, the, the boom. And then the Apple tried to get into business. And this is what they tried to get into business with, the Apple III, which was really quite a terrible machine for a lot of reasons. This is actually Apple's legal department gave us this because they were thro ordered to throw everything away. And so they came here and dumped it all on. I've got all this proprietary documentation and but legal counsel. And I said, you know, I'm going to be putting this out under the Creative Commons license. Do you really want to do this? And they said, hey, we've been ordered to discard of it. And it's heritage, and we don't want to – discard may mean a lot of things. So it's here. Steve Jobs, my sister, did this design a fan. So inside that plastic is this giant – Heat sink. Boat yeah. Heat sink. The entire frame has got to be heat sinking. Way too expensive, inflexible. And the original uh, Apple, the original Apple Mac, no fan there either. 
Therefore, the Mac chimney and the Mac and Frost and all the things that keep them from... Well, in fact, one of the guys who worked at Apple uh, said that they were sitting in the service department, and Steve Jobs, and this is in November of 83, and Steve Jobs comes in and says, oh, you people are going to be out of work because we're launching a computer in January that will need no servicing. Get ready to find other jobs. And by the summer of 84, there was this enormous racks of busted and broken Macs burned up and whatever. And um, basically, they put a sign on the end of this, ra of this rack of broken machines that only they would understand, which says, these Macs do not need servicing. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, <laughs> anyway. But, yeah, um, and moving along, uh, people forget that the Brits, you know, the, those those incredible Brits were had their own homegrown industry. This is the Ac the Acorn BBC microcomputer, which has became the strong arm chip in a lot of cell phones and handhelds. They they survived, but the, the Brits had their own homegrown industry, their own manufacturers and whatnot. Then they got sort of steamrolled by the the standards that came out. And then a weird little company in the early 80s had this vision of of the laptop. As we know it, the clamshell case, this is the grid. This is 1982. It had no hard disk but built-in, like, bubble memories uh, and a flat plasma screen. An incredible thing for 1982. No handle, but this cost about $9,000, and it was wow. bought by generals. This, 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 not this machine, but this particular model flew on the Columbia as the first personal computer in space. Very hard, you know, magnesium case. The grid, a built-in mode and built-in power supply. And the same year, this thing came out. And this was another Lee Felsenstein box, the Osborne One portable computer. And there's a young guy, an artist, who does these things called CompuBots. And this is his CompuBot of the Osborne. And uh, there's an Osborne Two there. And that gives you an idea of how it's held, held up. It's a real... The, the writing on here that Lee wrote, he said, the guy on the left doesn't stand a chance. He's 23 and a half pounds heavier. Uh, the original ad shows a guy, businessman, and one of them's carrying an Osborne and it's like suggesting the guy doesn't have the computer, has no chance, but of course, he's 23 and a half pounds lighter. So he probably does. And there's actually an ad showing somebody trying to, they, they're trying to put their Osborne under the seat, the passenger seat, and you know they'll never do it. But it's shown in the ad, like, how convenient! You can just, <laughs> but you look at that. It says he's never going to get that on the seat. Also called a luggable. A luggable. And when these things fell out of the overhead compartment, they could be serious injury. Of course, today we laugh because the stuff we put in overhead compartments weighs about you know as much as what we do. Um, this is an external monitor for these because you notice how the, tiny the screen is. Smaller than this model, but this costs about sixteen, seventeen hundred dollars. Ran CPM and WordStar and everything, VisiCalc, whatever you wanted, on the tiny screen, and they sold like hotcakes. $9,000, <laughs> generals bought them. You know, they plunked them down in the Joint Chiefs meetings or something. But grid's still around. It builds military systems. It's still here. It's amazing. Um, over here, when you say user interface in, in 1983, what you're really saying is, is this. This is your user interface. <laughs> and K-Pro is a competitor to in the portables market, obviously bigger screen, everything. They all have these, these sort of battle boxes, too, all metal. 
And then something amazing started happening. The hard disk started coming out. And this is what a hard disk looked like. This is about a five megabyte hard disk. You can sort of see the platters in there. But this was a coming revolution. So this is, this is basically one MP3 song. <laughs> the whole thing. Um, but there were other companies like Chromenko and everything. There's a huge, in 1980, 81, there's a huge blossoming of different companies using different operating systems and building different. Yeah, and these, these machines, that's a Black Bell and Howell Apple, and there's a, another Trash 80 and Exidy Sorcerer, tons of machines. And then the end came, the, the, the great Jurassic meteorite strike <coughs> came. They used to have a hex key lock on the back of these, so they were good in school systems. Yeah. Because these were too easy to pop the lid, and high school students would start playing with things. And in pull there out the boards. This. But here you had to have an Allen wrench to... Yeah, and, in fact, Bell and Howell, yeah, they sold them into educational. Right. Yeah. Bell and Howell's in the movie projector business with schools already had the contacts, and so they sold it to school. Market. And they got this UL license so that they could sell, so that AV departments could buy the computer. Right. Yeah. Right. And that's what, when I it's went like, with... It's not machines. a computer, it's a piece of AV equipment. It's in, right. in our budget. Already purchasing stream for that. Right. It was actually brilliant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the lock was... <laughs> the lock was good. They knew schools. It was, it was probably the first time that someone said, what happens in these schools, actually? Right. <laughs> it's like, well, kids pop the cover and pull the cards out and take right. them home. <laughs> so uh, the, big, the big earthquake was about to happen, and it started at this company. Now, this is kind of a weird story, and you probably, if you've seen all the movies about stuff, you've heard this, but the physical hardware is interesting to see. Um, IBM was in desperate straits in 1979-80 because... What they were trying to make in terms of personal computers was this. This is the 5120. came out in 78. It's a perfect piece of IBM equipment. weighs 120 pounds. It's all blue. It's IBM keyboard. It's, it's got you know two floppies. Why wouldn't somebody want this for the home or the office, right? It runs clunky IBM software and whatever, but this was IBM's, the last IBM personal computer. IBM actually hasn't made a personal computer since this. They've, why? Because, one, they were being sued by the federal government for antitrust violations, uh, which, which came, factored into a key board meeting uh, in Armonk where they're like, um, these Apple computers, they're appearing on the desks of our customers. We're talking big companies. They're, they're, they're stealing the hearts and minds. People are using these things. We've got to get into this market before it's too late. These little computers are no joke. And so they, had, they brought this guy from Florida, Bill Lowe, who actually later ended up working at Xerox, and I knew him there. And they said, Bill, you people down at Boca Raton really put things together fast. You're like, quote, unquote, mavericks of the IBM. You're like, and Bill was, had his shaking hands, and he put down his plan on an overhead projector. This is my plan for getting into the, uh, into the personal computing business. And basically it was... We, we shall not build any hardware. We assemble stuff from somebody else. We don't do our own software. We don't do our own sales uh, and, and we, or our own case or anything. We do it all open outsourced called Open Architecture in IBM. And he was like, I'm going to get shot. This is sacrilege. You don't do this in IBM. And then the, the chairman basically said, gentlemen, this is where we're going. End of story. End of argument. Why? Because we're being sued. We're in an antitrust suit that's lasted for 13 years. If we go and try to trounce another marketplace, we're going to just lose it. 
We have to do it complete with other people's stuff. If we're going to get in, we're forced to do that. And second, if we do it the IBM way, we'll take five years to ship an empty cardboard box. Or we'll be selling things like this, and we'll lose the market. So they had about eight months to a year to put together the IBM PC. And so they're flying all over the country trying to find out who's, what are we going to do? You know, what processor do we use? What software do we use? What operating system do we use? And they flew down to, to digital research down in Monterey in um, Pacific Grove, and Gary Kellogg was not there or wouldn't talk to them or whatever. There was an NDA, and the IBM NDAs were scary. They said, like, everything you've ever thought of or will think of in the future is ours just because we visited you. And so they wouldn't sign it. And so they go down to a payphone. There were no cell phones in those days, and they call Bill Gates, who they'd just been to, and say, they won't talk to us. They won't sell us their operating system. And Bill Gates said, come back to Seattle. So they came back to Seattle, and in the meantime, while they were flying back to Seattle, and this is IBM, this is like God flying around, you know, <laughs> God in a suit. They're coming back to Seattle, and Paul Allen calls this guy Patterson over at this company, Seattle Computer Products, who has made a ripoff of CPM on this machine, just for this machine, sort of quick and dirty uh, DOS, and they buy the rights to this for 50 grand. And when IBM arrives in their button-down shirts, they say, we have an operating system. We just didn't tell you about it before. It's called Microsoft DOS. And we'll have it ready for your new machine. And it'll cost you $75,000. So IBM says, all right, here's the check. <laughs> and give us an agreement, quick. And so Bill Gates gets, you know, he's got from a, a lawyer family. The agreement's typed up. And the agreement says, you can have MS-DOS and call it IBM PC-DOS and et cetera, et cetera, and we'll, we'll agree to secrecy and you own everything except we have the right to sell it to other manufacturers. It's non-exclusive. And IBM was like, you know, sweat coming off their brows. All right, sign off on that. And that's what made, that's built 26 buildings, on, on, made, made them what they are, that deal, because he was so good at, at, at deal, deal doing. So out came this in the summer of 81, and uh, it's all non-IBM anything. And IBM is used to making these. Yeah. There's the piece of a mainframe, <laughs> the only piece of a mainframe we've got. And then they, they made this, which basically is Microsoft operating system and non-IBM parts and well, nothing. There's nothing. Yeah, there's, there's nothing IBM here except for the nameplate. And they didn't even sell it themselves. They sell it through computer land and stuff like that. It was a total... Wow, IBM had never done anything like this before. And because they did that, the people were able to make clones. Now, they went on and made, you know, the IBM PC Junior with this shitty keyboard. I remember working at the Toronto lab next to where they made these. And they were trying to dumb down the PC Junior so it wouldn't cut into these sales. And so they learned a few things. They had to come up with a real keyboard, but it was a wireless keyboard. And then the AT, this big monster thing under there, and the XT, and, and sales, they were selling millions of units. I mean, it, was, it blew everyone's minds. And then the clone makers arrived. And here's your first clone, the Eagle PC from Los Gatos, which the company tanked when partly as a result of the owner uh, flipping his sports car into the Lexington Reservoir on the day the company went public, just over the hill here. And uh, I, I actually have the whole story from his daughter on the website. And then... Um, in the House of Pies restaurant in Houston, uh, came out of that as napkin came Compaq, 
which was 100% compatible, runs all popular programs written for the IBM personal computer. So this was the first serious huge competitor because someone had backward engineered the ROM BIOS legally. legally. And so the industry exploded. So that open architecture is now totally flown open. And every, the future was then wide open. You'd end up with things like Linux. You end up things with like Apple dropping its own hardware and, and, and everybody dropping their own hardware and going with this because you're going to, in the future, you would have 300,000 companies making the parts for this that are different than the companies making the software. It was a total accident. It never would have happened. You know, the whole tenets of the, per, of the computer industry was not to ever let that happen. And, and yet it did by, because of Bill Lowe and his shaking. <laughs> putting this single slide down on an overhead projector in 1980. That, that, that's when the moment it's, it happened. And so we now move on to people trying to constantly reinvent what the personal computer was. And yet this line was the, ultimately the dominant line. There was nothing that would stop that. Nothing in the world could stop that. But Steve Jobs, who'd left Apple, created Next. And here are some beautiful Next cubes. And, this, this was the flag flying over uh, the Washington Next headquarters that, 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 that I managed to get that on eBay, for, uh, which was an amazing thing. Um, so this is a complete Next Cube laser printer. It's supposed to be the computer of the 90s, and it <clears throat> had a version of, of Unix running here and high-res screens and all that sort of stuff, and launched in 89. There's young Mr. Jobs there. And, of course, you know, it... It could not buck the trend. There's no way to create a new platform at that point, even in 1989. It was too late. It was going to be the IBM PC or nothing. And so you go on to the next, and you had another platform called the B. This is a prototype B box. It was also a guy who split out from Apple named Jean-Louis Gasset. And meanwhile, Apple's chugging along in their own world. And because they had had 60 70% of the market, by 1980, they had a huge momentum, which they spent the next 25 years losing. You know, they did everything they could possibly do to lose the lose their market share down to two and a half percent. But they're still a very, very viable company. But Apple, you know, in in the, the history of personal computing, Apple's like half the story because it's so interesting the things they did and the personalities and their even though they're two and a half percent of the market now, they're still half the story of the history. And there's a few things that are interesting in here. All the Funny uh, misstarts and successes. I mean, huge success with this machine because of desktop publishing. The ability to connect this to a laser printer like this and, and proof print before you went on to your, your typesetter. Huge thing. People couldn't write big enough checks to get that in the printing business. So that was, was huge. That was almost a happy accident. Desktop um, publishing because of them, really. Yeah, it really was because of them. There, uh, I spent ten, almost 10 years in that business. But this is the Lisa. This is a Lisa One development machine taken apart. Um, and this is the original floppy format called Fileware. And they had two, they had two of these, two of these drives. And it looked like this. And Steve Jobs went to Japan. This thing was already shipping. And this was Apple's first product with a full graphical interface. Shipping in 83. And he went to Japan and he saw the uh, the little three and a half inch floppy you're all familiar with that Sony was just coming out with. And he came back and he said, "Stop! I don't want to produce any more of these. I want a three and a half inch floppy." And they built in a hard drive. 
as well. And this is converted to that. But this is the original Twiggy drive. This little little baby using Elisa or whatever. But the bread and butter for Apple was still Apple IIs. This is the Apple II factory right there. You think the, the sheer volume of these things. This is incredible. And um, so then the Apple II kept chugging along. This is the Apple IIc that was used on a, on a shoot of a film called 2010. It's, there's a sequence where Haywood Floyd is sitting on the beach in Hawaii typing away on a computer from 2010, and this is the one they were using. That's so why it's all bleached. But it's, it, it's the successor to the film, 2001. These are chips from a failed uh, project called Brooklyn, which was a, an, an Apple II powerful enough to run graphics that was supposed to get people to bridge from the Apple II to the, to the Mac. And prototypes. This is a, an early development of the Apple IIc. You can sort of see how things are kind of pulled apart. And this is a, pro, uh, a development uh, machine for the Mac Portable. And there's an interesting story behind that. Um, this was the first portable, commercial portable Macintosh. Uh, it was developed in Colorado. And Apple bought these to use on service calls. This, Apple, by the, by the 87, 88, was already falling behind technically because they didn't have a portable machine. And so the customers sort of shamed them into making a portable Mac, which was a terrible product that couldn't barely read the screen. The guy that made this was Jean-Louis Gasset, who, strangely enough, this is the convoluted story, the reason that Microsoft didn't have any legal problems doing Windows was because of Jean-Louis Gasset. Because a letter came from Bill Gates, I think in about 86, Microsoft was the top developer for the Mac. They did, they did most of the most of the, the Mac applications when it was launched. And so Bill Gates wrote a letter saying, we'd like to port all, all of the, uh, the, the, the Mac OS to uh, PC clones. And Gasset intercepted the letter and sent it back saying, don't threaten us, you know, don't, you can't steal anything we have, et cetera, et cetera. So then Gates wrote a letter to, to John Scully, the CEO, saying, we're going to pull off the Mac because you're threatening us to restrict our work on Windows. And then he had a gun to his head, so basically had to write a letter back, you know, basically saying, you, we don't restrict you in any way. So it was all because of Gasset, and he formed this company, which was bidding on the next, the future Mac OS, which became Steve's thing uh, from, from the next step operating system. So there's all these convoluted stories. And this is a table showing the, the launch of the Mac. Um, there's a, there, if you put your head inside that cover, you can actually see the signatures of the people who worked on the Mac project, several of whom have worked here on the Digibar project. And if you wanted to open a Mac up, you needed a tool like this called the Mac Cracker, because they were assembled by robotics. And uh, you had to have a special tool, and you, you voided the warranty as soon as you opened it up. And there was no fan. So it was definitely Steve's idea of a closed perfect box. But why did he close the box? Because he wanted to prevent the chaos of the Apple II with all its boards and all its manufacturers and all the problems that they had. He didn't li like open architectures fundamentally, and that's true of Apple today. You know, on the iPod and iTunes, it's very closed. And every time Steve tries a closed architecture, they, they have some success for a while because they perfect things early, and then they lose the market. Somebody else does it open. That's been the 30-year history of, of Apple.
but they're way out on the innovative front edge, and maybe they'll keep the iPod marketplace. You know, you never know, but it's, just, it's the same thing. This is, on, on the other hand, the Wozniak's, Steve Wozniak's last machine at Apple, the Apple II GS, which ran a graphical interface. If you look here, this is the, the very sort of low-res GUI of the Apple II GS, and, but it was open. Uh, you could easily pop the cover, and it ran old Apple II programs as well as new graphical programs. So that the, the, it was the two cultures at Apple, the one of the open system and the closed system, and the closed system won. Um, but it's, it's interesting to, to, to see that dynamic at the company. And next, sort of zooming along, um, these are military tempested Macs for use on Navy battleships and at the CIA and whatnot that are, sort of, I call them the Black Macs, kind of a funny thing. In the Cold War, they had all these, you had this sort of copper sheeting under here and these connectors that cost six or seven hundred bucks. And it was to keep emissions down so that if you were doodling in Mac paint, then the Soviet operative wouldn't see it or wouldn't be able to pick it up, you know. So, you know, they helped us win the Cold War. Or was it just $20,000 for a Mac Plus <laughs> of taxpayer money? This is a, the Matt Groening school as hell. Macintosh TV, which was sold for a matter of weeks at college campuses, it had a remote control, and it had uh, you could play music on it or use it as a as a computer or a TV, so you could flip back and forth, and it, it took a, only a little space on the desk in the college dorm. It's a really cool idea for educators, and it's something still going on. And next is the Jeff Raskin, who started the Macintosh project, uh, got kicked out of it by Steve Jobs and went on and founded two, two other projects, Information Appliance, and this is all real early stuff, and the Canon Cat. But this, is, this was Jeff's idea of what the Mac should be. And Jeff passed away last year, unfortunately. Um, this, and then we'll, we'll go upstairs, this is the first um, musical uh, computer uh, based on a personal computer. And it's actually, in some sense, the great ancestor of the iPod. This was made up of old parts uh, by, made by Daniel Kotke in, in his off hours. This is, a, this, is a, this is the oldest artifact of a Macintosh in the world. This screen here was bought as, as a package of, of tubes bought by Jeff Raskin in 79 to start prototyping a small computer that became the Mac. So this is the oldest Mac artifact on Earth. And this, is, this plays music and records it with a joystick and an attached uh, music keyboard off of floppies on an Apple II, on an old Apple II. So it's actually sort of the great ancestor of a music player, but you could also compose um, based on an Apple II, but it was portable. You still had to plug it in, and Daniel used to go and play space music in bars in Palo Alto with it. So that's, that's room one. And uh, we should zip through the upstairs and just keep going. I had the student program three of these black apples, mm -hmm. so because he he'd actually written a, as a high school student for the whole orchestra when he orchestrated three of the black apples. So you had to hit the inner keys at the exact same. Yeah, in fact, there's I just found an article on using the Bell and Howell Apple II and in that kind of stuff. That's that was Michael Cook was doing back here in about eighty. It's probably in that article, yeah. 
So the next three rooms we're going to do are, are upstairs, and the stairs are steep, but they're well lit. And um, and I'll sort of go through them pretty fast and then show you the Cray supercomputers. And then we can all just sort of wander randomly throughout the, throughout the barn. So as we go up the stairs, you'll see the... Uh, the great hallway of T-shirts, the, the corridor, and these T-shirts, of course, give you a nice, soft sound, and they're kind of symbolic of our whole industry. So you've navigated through all those conference T-shirts alive. In this room... Yeah, this room is kind of a, a, a key room for old timers. <clears throat> and we call this the workstation wallow in, in honor of the pigs. Um, but what you have here is the very beginnings of everything in a sense. Remember I was telling you about the homebrew computer club. Um, well, this is the machine that they were using at, at Xerox Palo Alto Research Center on Coyote Hill Road. Uh, at the same time the club meetings were happening. And they had made this themselves. It started in 72. And it had a mouse, a key set, which is an interface device that's lost to history now, a big graphical display that could show like a full page of text. Xerox was a copier company. They wanted to be able to show a document. This could talk to Ethernet through something called ThickNet, which is what this is. And you could send email. You could run hacks. You could... Uh, send a document to a printer. Um, you could do small talk programming, which is object-oriented programming. It was incredible what you could do on this machine. And in fact, there's some things you can't do on modern systems you could do here. Uh, you could talk through the ARPANET to other Altos. It was a network machine. Tremendous uh, thing um, that Xerox invented and then it kind of gradually walked out the door. This is Dave Boggs' Ethernet drop. Um, a friend of mine tore this out of the ceiling at Park when they were taking all the old net. He's the co-inventor of Ethernet. So it's a cool thing to have his his Ethernet connection to the Ether. And they made other machines at Park. That's the Dolphin. That's the first machine to run Mesa, which is a Xerox language. And you can sort of see the wire wrapping. I mean, just the complexity. These are handmade, hand, you know, very unreliable in some sense. This is one of the first Lisp computers around the Lisp language. Those of you who know what that means. There's been many, many books written about fumbling the future and how Xerox invented everything and let it go. But Xerox did commercialize all this. They just did it in a big expensive package, like you'd think a big company would do. The Xerox Star. And this is Dave Liddell's box. This is Dave Liddell's box. And so what you look at here is you've got, you know, look at this machine and the keyboard. Center, bold, italics, delete, copy, move, properties. You know, it's all built in. It's all huge amount of research on ergonomics and everything. And network machine with, a, 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 with icons and windows and trash bins and everything. That's what it looks like when it's running. And these do run. In fact, this, the whole network runs. And out to network printers and you do email and, you know, totally. This is the early 80s. It's just a tremendous achievement. Uh, then they made the 6085s, the daybreak machines, and they sold 
you know, tens of thousands of units, but they all cost about 12 to 15 grand a piece. You had to have a whole network set up, and it was just too expensive. So the, definitely the field was open for the plucking. Uh, they even had, in Canada, this was very popular, the Xerox 860 with the, the cat touchpad. That was actually a CPM box that allowed secretaries to do full-page document editing. And the Three Rivers Perk is, is a copy of the Alto on which the future, the mock kernel was written, which is now OS X. Um, you, need, you need a convergent IWS workstation here. I do. <laughs> do you have one? No. Yeah. I, I put a team together, Xerox Park and HP, basically, and we did convergent IWS, co-founder of convergence. So oh, one. you are? Okay. You need, you need an IWS, an we, AWS. We do. Engine. We do. We do. And that, that part of the story hasn't been told. <laughs> Um, no, I, I, if you can help, that would be tremendous. Um, because there's a whole, this is just a Xerox story. And yeah, there was a yeah, huge yeah, other story yeah. that was going on at the Apollo same time. Apollo, was one Apollo box over there, but it's a late box. There's a Deck Rainbow right in the corner. Deck Rainbow, Rainbow 100, running a multi-user, multi-account CPM system. CPM 86 for... It was, you know, you just squeeze around there, you can see, touch your old friend. Um, if it's got a hard drive, it wasn't Yeah, that one's, that one's, I think, the original basic. Yeah, that's your basic. It's mounted sort of vertically, but that, I think that one has a hard drive, to tell you the truth. Yeah, so that might be a later model. So Workstation Wallow. And here we are. They started 68. They started right now, this room was recently put back together after having been torn apart, and uh, they vacuumed it at 2.30. And we have a... Uh, I one of those, thinking maybe she would use computers. Uh-huh. didn't work. Yeah, it's... Um, intended for ladies. Oh, yeah, that's this, cute. Well, in 1980-81, when I was getting into computers, I always thought that by 1990, you'd have that Fisher Price would make a computer so rugged it was going to be a tablet that, that the kid could throw it in a bath and it would still work. And you would be able to touch on it and drag your things around with your fingers. And this sort of embodies what I thought would happen. But it yeah, took no, it, it came the closest, but nobody wanted it. Nobody wanted it. Yeah, it's kind of the irony. But the, the Audrey's is a cute box. This is, I call it like Judy Jetson would have a computer like this. <laughs> yes. And, and all the marking literature like shows like salt and pepper shakers, and it's like supposed to be on the on the kitchen kitchen counter. Um, anyway, so there were other weird things like the Miko, uh, which is a a Macintosh inside King outside kiosk with a proboscis. These are all oddballs. But the the main thrust of this room was the what we call the 80s beige invasion. And the, everything was beige and just a zillion boxes of different manufacturers all battling it out, mostly going to lose to IBM compatibles. But here you have Commodore again with the Amigas. This is a prototype machine with prototyping plastic. You're lacking the super pet. We're lacking a super pet. Yeah, we just have this pet 4032 here. When I switched from high school to college teaching, we had the super pet that had the two processors, mm -hmm. the 6502 and the 68000, with all the watt languages that uh, yeah. work with. Yeah, yeah, we're lacking that. Uh, we've got the senior partner, which I always assume was used by lawyers, the Panasonic. Um, this um, 
where is it? The Morrow. Uh, Galen's dad wrote scripts for Disney guy. on that. George, George Morrow. That's the guy. He passed away last oh, year or two yeah. years ago. But the G Galen's dad wrote scripts for Disney on this. What's the company? Morrow. Why was Morrow? So here you are. Um, Epson QX10, Larry Niven, and, and Jerry Purnell pounded out a lot of science fiction books on that one. Um, and then behind you, you've got more of the console. Here's here's a couple generations of Pong there. Sears was selling them like hotcakes. I remember playing those. And the Adam family computer from Coleco. And does anyone know what Coleco stands for? <laughs> this is another... It's Connecticut Leather Company. <laughs> why? Well, Con Connecticut Leather Company, having tooled up and made the Cabbage Patch dolls and made a fortune, said, well, gee, what do leather companies do? They go into computers. It's just natural. You know, like, look at Tandy and Tandy Radio Shack. And so they made this, and it was a bomb. Yeah, the Atari. It was an bomb. Yeah, lots of, lots of Ataris were sort of scattered around there. They were the ones that had the game cartridges. Oh, Intel Development System. Oh, there's a good, and we've got the big blue IDSs and the IPSs and the. Do you have an NDS 800? Uh, I think I have an M. I have part of it. I have like the yeah. floppy cabinets. But I miss them. I'm just starting to collect those. Yeah, you should have more uh, Intel development systems. We should. Because that was pretty much a mainstay. For yeah. All these guys. Yeah, it really was. Well, I think, of course, using more <laughs> This has the. This was at Columbia and has the distinction of being one of the systems that actually controlled the tokamak reactor, Columbia. In the middle of New York City, like the center of the universe was being done, but no, but no New Yorkers knew about it. They probably wouldn't have cared. But, but that was worked on the tokamak. And then over here, you've got some oddball boxes. There's the digital group and down yeah. there. I gave the printer to the guy in Phoenix. Uh, and he restored it to working condition in the monitor. But there it is. It's, it has almost a deck-like feel with the right. cabinets. Yeah. And it had the high-speed cassette unit the there that speed. never worked, worked in the stretch. It's it stretched stretch 100 feet a second on right. that tape. But in so doing, it, it stretched that uh, uh, mylar that uh, you'd never read it back again. Yeah, it was so weird. A hierarchical storage system on cassette tape. Can you imagine that? <laughs> Amazing. But, but you could buy it with any of three processors. Right. You could get a Z80 board, you get a 6502 board, you could get, uh, I can't remember the third one. Hmm. I got a Z80. In the next room, we have another great set of things. Um, this room is devoted to a bunch of things. The first thing is sort of the operating system wars. Um, and people forget these Halcyon days, but. Um, there were days when, you know, basically uh, either the processor, our processes are faster, our operating system is easier to use. And if I plug this in, uh, you can sort of see some of uh, the, the shots in the battle. Um, this was Apple when, on, on the, 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 when Windows 95 came out. Oh, there's the Audrey turning itself off. When Windows 95 came out, Apple realized this is the final shot. It's not a shot across the bow. This is the. So these are the kind of Let's videos that they would make. Add a second hard disk to each of these new computers. The Macintosh has a built-in SCSI expansion connector. So to add a second hard disk, all we have to do is plug it into the computer, plug in the power cord, and turn on the disk and the Macintosh. 
You remember this? Find an open port on the motherboard or controller card and plug in the new hard disk. Now this gets where it gets interesting. Plug in a power connector for the new hard disk. Mount the drive in an open bay. But this created jobs. Place folks. the cover and start the computer. Enter CMOS and configure the disk. This is the part I loved. Select MS DOS from the Start Programs menu. Run FDISC. Partition the drive. Restart the computer again. Select MS DOS from the Start Programs menu. Format the hard disk. <laughs> then exit MS DOS. Finally, double click My Computer and access our new disk. It isn't just more difficult to install a new hard disk on a PC. It can be harder to use the new disk. So that's that's how it that's how it all goes on, but that's the the battle, you know, the uh, struggle for survival. And uh, of course, on this side of the camp here you had the Unixes and you had Apple the Mac, you had Linux beginning and but Microsoft wrote a ton of the applications for for the Mac, I mean, it was just a, it was a dominant, a dominant player. Um, you had systems to run Windows on the Mac. This is ironic because of Boot Camp today, where you can boot, you know, Windows XP or Mac OS on the same machine. This is hardware to do it to run Windows 3 on the Mac just by an emulator chip. And so over here in the, the Microsoft world, you had, you know, all kinds of things. You know, Microsoft so so good at marketing. That uh, before it completely disappeared, and at the same time you had desktop publishing starting on the on the Mac. You had the Siebel conferences, and you had Macromind beginning in Chicago, and all this great stuff. And uh, portable portability, and people were trying uh, experiments with Ken computing. This is the Go. This is actually from a company called Go, uh, which had a beautiful pen operating system, and it was sort of this is a famous meeting. This book's been written about this, but this is a actual machine that was shown to Bill Gates by the uh, the Go evangelist um, with a, with a pen-based OS, and uh, things were stolen and whatnot. Uh, so that they announced pen Windows when they didn't have anything actually, and it would run on early early platforms like this. And sort of port portability. This is the first machine with a full-sized LCD. Uh, which was also unreadable, which didn't teach Apple any lessons about the Mac Portable, but uh, the Data General won. And uh, the rest of this room, you've got um, oddballs of computing. This is the Minitel, you know, how the French invented the Internet. This is the Alcatel Minitel, but a U.S. version. They were, they were trying to sell it to the, the U.S. market, uh, and it, uh, it never... Uh, it never took off. This you could actually dial these each other and talk talk on them. And you saw the comp the comptometers downstairs. And of course the great computing device of of an era that we've forgotten, 
which is the yeah, slide yeah, rule. This is from West Point. It was sent to me by a Dugan who was second private second class mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, now he's the, uh, the head of all uh, rotocraft research in the United States. And he said, you haven't got the slide rule. So he, I got a package from Pentagon.mil. Which <laughs> um, is cool. Um, all kinds of stuff here, but this is uh, sort of a look at the advertising of the late 40s, you know, trying to explain to the public what computers were. We've got a whole, on our website, a whole thing about IBM's corporate advertising, the beautiful painted uh, ads, um, beautiful artistry in some of these, and the fingers you can count on, vacuum tubes. Um, this is actually a kind of a version of a of a comptometer from Denmark from the late 60s. It's called a port portable computer. And uh, this is a telepathy trainer, um, sort of a calendar, telepathy calendar, created by Henry Dakin of the Dakin Toy Company, the, the inheritor of the Dakin Toy Company, the plush toys, in 72. So this is a 70s kind of mind improvement machine. Um, <laughs> Oddballs. If you were a kid in the late 40s, on your Christmas tree, you might have got one of these, a Wolverine toy adding machine. So many nerds were born on these. <laughs> and more weird home things. This is a, this is a ComSet biofeedback trainer for the Apple II. And this company still exists. It's in Montreal, and they do, they do um, continent incontinence training. <laughs> So the incontinence market is big. Um, the, the great classics, the $99 Sinclair with a membrane keyboard. Incredible, you know, value for what you got, a basic machine for, for that amount. And just there's the Bill Cosby Texas Instruments machine. Everybody had their sponsor. Bob Newhart was the sponsor for one of them, and Bill Cosby was the sponsor for this machine, the, the advertising face. And tennis shoes. Uh, uh, to attach, there's their pedometer tennis shoes. You know, oddball things. So let's go in now downstairs, which is a somewhat steep stair, but there's a good railing. Yeah, this this was the hayloft, which we which we rebuilt. It was a long time ago. So this should be an easy. <coughs> Sorry for the mess down here, but this is uh, still getting all this this uh, sorted out. So this is the biggest the biggest machine we have. Um, it's a Cray one. Supercomputer. It was at um, the signs wrong. It was actually at Lawrence Livermore Labs, and and it's the Seymour. Well, Seymour Cray was a Trekkie. And sort of here's a Star Trek reference here. And so when he, he conceived of the ideal computer, it was going to be like a piece of Trek. And not only was it designed well to carry the clock signal around, 
but it was just beautifully designed. It looks like sort of the warp core in the Enterprise or like Nomad. Remember Nomad that floated in the Enterprise? And the seats are the, are the same Naga hide over plywood as the seats on the bridge, like Captain Kirk's chair. <coughs> and it's one of the reasons the Discovery Channel came here to do the show was they wanted me to have beam, it, beam in and beam out of this crate. Because I said, you got to come, and this is a piece of track, oh, Star, how Star Trek changed the world. Um, and this was serial number uh, 38 of about 70 or so made. And it was installed at Livermore Labs. Um, it was not the computer that was featured in War Games, although it was, they had two machines at the time. One of them was in War Games, and not in War Games, in, uh, uh, what's that film, Tron. And uh, this was in the other building. But we, for a while, we thought this was the one in Tron, but it looked exactly like the one in the film, but that was number six. And the, it, this, the power distribution cabinet says it was run for 70,000 hours. And it's basically these copper black, copper backed boards stacked up in these columns. And you can come and hold these boards or pick one up from there. They're very heavy. And the idea was that chilled coolant was going up and down these fins and pulling the heat out of the chips. And that was the innovation of how to keep the things cool. If you want to do a lot of number crunching fast, you had to figure out how to draw heat off. That's, that's always been the case. But that's the plumbing. And all of these, these machines were made by women who were weaver women in Chippewa Falls. And when Seymour Cray said, who is going to do this backplane wiring? I get it. It's the weaver clubs, women. They're disciplined. They're perfectionists. Um, they work in teams and they'll gossip the entire time, but they won't ever screw up. And that's exactly, there's a whole book about the people who made the, the craze, and it shows these women in their 40s, 50s, and 60s making these machines. And a group of, of three women would work and make a machine every eight months. And, and they never screwed up. Perfect jobs. Who Livermore gave That actually came via a guy. They, they sold it at an auction about 15 years ago to a guy named Tony Cole, and then I bought it off of him. Um, there's other Cray parts here. This is pieces of the Cray 3. Uh, which was a machine that was a, basically a massive cube, uh, not very massive, only about this big, size of a couple of toasters, immersed in, in coolant. Is that the fishbowl? Yeah. No, the fishbowls are around the corner. Uh, the Cray the 2? Yeah, with the Lucite waterfall. And, yeah, those are, you can see how the technology, it's all up and down, I think it's like 64 layers in every, it's an incredible thing. They built one, uh, was delivered, it's called the Gray Wolf, was run at NCAR. That's, and that's a, this is a piece of a Cray XMP because of the different connectors. And this is, is a real a rare thing. This is the evaluation report by Los Alamos on the Cray in 76 where they recommended it for government purchase. And that's what made Cray into a real viable company, that report. <laughs> and it, they compared it with the CDC machine, which of course Cray had designed himself, and it, it, it beat it two to one or so, so the government said we should buy these, and they became a viable company. So... And so, the, in fact, I met the guy that George Michael, who, who created most of these tests, uh, at at Livermore, 
But here, I'll get a picture of everybody in front of the crane because it's kind of a, a cool thing to do. Um, the guy who you go into. Oh, we're really not a techie. <laughs> okay, great. And I'll take a couple, one without the flash. Yeah, in fact, uh, George Michael, who's kind of an old guy now, but he's in a wheelchair, and I showed him this report, and he said, those people, you know, Livermore, it's just typical. It's just typical. They don't credit us for creating the benchmark at Livermore that they use at Los Alamos. And, yeah, and the competition between those labs was pretty fierce. Um, another oddball is this thing here. This is a... Basically, a S100 hobbyist supercomputer. So a Stanford professor named Roy Murphy decided, I'm going to make a multiprocessor uh, test bed out of S100 CompuPro boards. Mm -hmm. Actually, they're Godbout. Yeah, they're all Godbout boards. And they have two thousands in each bay. Mm -hmm. And they, um, um, so there's actually, I think it was five bays, so there's 10 68,000 processors in here. And they, it's got the most weird S100 bus extending technology. And he was going to take it to the Watsonville dump. And I said, no, it's, it's the largest S100 that I know about. And so this, I said, what did this cost? He said, about, I don't know, dollars to $80,000 versus, you know, 12, 15 million for that. But that's a vector machine, and this was a multiprocessor. But they used this to design multiprocessor boards. But this is like a, like an elf hair on steroids, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and University of Tennessee tried that with apples. Tried that with apples? Well, yeah, just recently. They put a, they get on, on top 500s by, oh, by, by putting, by putting a, a ton of, ton of uh, apple, apple uh, processors together. And they did. They, they, they assembled the whole thing like, like, like our students would. They got it, they got it right, but it never, run, it never ran a program. Oh, okay. <laughs> they were able to do the Linpack uh, Lin uh, test on it. test and said, okay, we're on the five. But it was kind of bullshit. And folks, there's a couple more things to see in here. Um, I invite you to look at, these are the machines that are either too heavy to move or too, too esoteric mm -hmm. to be of interest to a generic audience, like the original Wang computer, the scientific machine, the Deck Robin, the internally used DEC CPM machine that looks like a PDP-11, but it's not. It's a CPM machine. Which is the Wang? The Wang. There's the printer for it, and right here, this is the... the original one there? Yeah, 1972 TTL. I met, I met with Wang 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 was doing scientific machines like yes. this. Then they got into word processing. Okay. But they all looked the same the same case design. There's a CompuPro 816. There's a Timeshare Silent 700 and various other things I did not move out. And then this is the Apple world. This is the remaining Apple stock um, working at Apple IIc. These are Larry Lessig's machines. He's a, a Stanford law professor, and he's, he's quite famous in cyber law, and so he gave me his machines. I, each one has a history, like, this machine was used to write all the stuff for the case against Microsoft. Oh. This machine was used to write code and other laws of cyberspace. So they give them to me, and we'll do it. They're not, you know, they're cubes and power books, but they're historic for their, their place in history. And all kinds of odd, sundry 
Now there's the more later model Macs, and this is a prototype Mac um, that, that never came off of the Power Express. And um, that's the Max. And then there's the Brad Blazing Machine. So that's a little prototype? This thing here, yeah, this is this is the Blazing Fast. Sorry, it's a bit dusty. This is um, called the Cray Q2. And it's the prototype unit for the Cray 2 series. They built two of them. And the, 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 the things that you see here, the miniaturization, right? It's not a, it's not a two ton or a three ton tower. Immersing the boards in fluoriner. They're, they're, they're immersed in the coolant. Even the transformers are immersed. And um, just sort of a more compact feel. The people who had this for the Computer History Museum, and I got it through through them, they didn't know what this was. <laughs> and I said, this is really strange. So I, I got it. And um, then Brad Blazing uh, emailed and ah, said, this is the machine that was at the Minnesota Supercomputing Center. And he sent me a photograph of it sitting on the floor. I said, well, what is it? It's, it's the prototype for the Cray 2. And what happened to the other prototype? Well, it was destroyed. So it's like that stamp that's more valuable because the other one was destroyed. <laughs> but, but so the, the later Cray 2 had the beautiful Lucite waterfall bubbling and the coolant going through it. Oh. They're hard to find, but this is very hard to find. And these rusting bolts tell Cray Seymour always used stainless steel parts, and you can tell this is just. But this was running, and another notable thing about this machine is that it was the first supercomputer connected to the internet. According to Brad, it's like you could dial in this thing TCP/IP or FTP, and you could run things on this. We did this in he said we did it in '84, '85. So it's the first internet-connected supercomputer. And it can be your connection with Brad. He's helped you understand what this is. He came here, he stood here, we turned it around, he explained every detail about it, and then I got it. It's all a podcast on the site. And thank goodness, because now the story is told. And he said he was amazed that it existed still. So the miniaturization of supercomputers. And with that, there's one other sort of fun special thing, which is uh, this is uh, it hasn't really been cleaned up, but this is Galen Schwagwall. You saw the great hallway of T-shirts, but all kinds of really great swag here. Uh, I, one of the ones I like is Silicon Valley Guy Handbook, <laughs> and someone emailed and said, "That's my uncle." <laughs> Ray, Ray FIFO and sort of the Ray's office, which is a mess, and his whole habits there he is at the laundry, and and there's his his, his girlfriend, and you know it's, this is a really funny early '80s, and you have Tetris, and you've got you know all this this stuff. People always recognize something from from here. Tim, Timothy Leary's Mind Mirror, and you know. And, People will remember there was a time at which you would go to conventions and they were about computers, just about computers and software, and they gave you T-shirts pressed into the shape of Texas. <laughs> and you know, you'll tell your your kids or even your current kids, not even grandkids, that people used to give stuff away. I mean, they would give stuff away so you bought software or bought a computer. How ridiculous! And people met about computers. Why would they do that? <laughs> right. It'll all be, it'll all be extinct.
So with that, that's that's the end of my long-winded tour. That's great. Thank you for your attention. You've been listening to DigiBarn Radio. This story is available for some uses under our Creative Commons license. Please check our website at www.digibarn.com. That's www.digibarn.com for this license and more great stuff from the DigiBarn collections. This is Tommy Cuellar signing off. Thanks for tuning in.